Alrighty, there's a lot going on right now, isn't there? With spring break and um, all that happening, we've had baptisms this morning, and it's just been a wonderful time to see Vanessa and Dennis and hear their stories and see what God has done in their lives. You've got March Madness. I mean, did anybody pick UMBC? Okay, be honest. Kale Kibbe. Oh, no, Kale. So, you did. Greg, you picked him? For real? Way to go, man. UMBC, you know what it stands for, right? You must be Cinderella. So, um, I would not want to play them tonight, all right? Um, there's also a lot going on in this text that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so, um, I want to go ahead and, and jump into that. We're going to be exploring God's unique ability to use seasons of our lives that may be difficult or, or, or hard, and, and God can use those to accomplish His good plans. We're going to look at that. We're also going to look at a situation that on the surface just looks totally weird, and it's just going to raise all kinds of theological questions, but at the end of the day, it's going to issue us a really uh, wonderful invitation that's going to impact the way we live and love one another in our community. Uh, Lastly, we're going to look at at a, a guy who is probably best described as a con man, a scam artist a phony, and his situation is not only interesting, but it's also going to deliver to us a very, very potent warning to each one of us, okay? So let's go ahead and dive in. If you've got a Bible, would you open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 8? We're going to be looking at chapter 8, verse 4 to 25, okay? Acts chapter 8, verse 4 to 25. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, we've been in this series in the book of Acts for some time now. Um, Acts is the story of the early church right after Jesus died, after he rose from the grave, and after he ascended back into heaven. And it answers the question, well, what happened next? What happened after Jesus died, rose, and ascended back into heaven? Did these people, these men and women who heard Jesus, who saw Jesus, did they just, you know, pack up and go home? Well, what happened next? Well, in a word, what happened next is that the church expanded. And as we learned last week, this expansion uh, was helped at least in part to begin by something called persecution. Last week, we looked at the story of Stephen. Uh, Stephen was a man who uh, was living his life for Jesus. He was not living his life for the religious establishment there in first century Jerusalem. And because of that, because of his strong faith in Jesus, he and these religious leaders kind of collided, and the result was Jesus was, or sorry, Peter, sorry, sorry, not Jesus, not Peter, Stephen, was killed for his faith in Jesus, right? Um, and, And as a result of that, after Stephen was killed, things began to get very, very dark for the men and women of that early church. As it says in chapter 8, verse 1, And there arose on that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. That's a key word. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So let's take a look at this first couple of verses. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 4 to 8. Again, because of this persecution, the church began to expand. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, um, the unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice coming out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. Again, because the persecution that arose in Jerusalem, the church began to expand. And, and here we can read that as a part of that expansion, Philip, one of the godly men that was chosen back in Acts chapter 6, as a godly man to be a servant of the church, he was chosen along with Stephen. Uh, Philip went to Samaria, and, and we're going to talk some more in just a minute about why that's significant. What's, so, what's a big deal about Samaria? But for now, let's just examine this persecution at face value. What did it accomplish? The opponents of Jesus and the gospel were these religious leaders, again, these religious leaders there in first century Jerusalem, but, but the person behind all of it was Satan. Satan hates God. He hates his people. And so he'll do anything he can to, to stand against and to slow down and hopefully even stop the progression and the expansion of God's church and God's kingdom. And uh, obviously what he wanted to do there through that persecution is smother the gospel to stop its progress. But what did the persecution end up doing? It actually ended up spreading it even further, right? Again, it says that those who were scattered about went about preaching the word. It's, it's like when you go camping. You've got a campfire over here, and a little spark kind of plops out over here, and it's starting a fire, and you go over to, to stamp it out. If you're not careful, you can even stamp it out, and in doing so, sparks will fly and even start even, start even more fires. It's exactly what's happening here. As a result of this persecution there in Jerusalem, the gospel begins to expand and the church begins to expand. And that's good for us to remember because for us in our perspective, persecution is always what? Bad. Persecution is always bad. It's bad because persecution is going to involve pain, it's going to involve hardship, and it's going to involve fear. And whenever you have anything that has pain, hardship, and fear, those things are, by definition, bad, right? Now, uh, persecution, when, 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 when this comes into the people's lives there in Jerusalem, I'm sure that they saw it as bad. It was painful. Uh, people had to leave their homes, had families perhaps had to break up. I'm sure it seems bad today to the thousands and thousands and thousands of believers who live in countries. There are over 60 countries in our world where it is illegal to be a Christian and where they face the threat of, the very real threat of persecution every single day. But here's what we need to know. Without taking anything away from the hardships and the fear and the pain that are caused by persecution, here's what we need to know. That to God and his perspective, while the pain and the suffering and the hardship of his children surely matters to him, he can use his perfect power to accomplish his kingdom agenda even despite the persecution that happens. Jesus will not lose. Amen? Jesus 
will not lose. And that's why we can say this. It's there in your notes that hard times can be fruitful times. Hard times can be fruitful times. For the most part, there are just a very small number of us in this room right now who have faced real persecution. But for the most part, the rest of us aren't going to face you know, real severe persecution in our lives, at least not the kind where uh, some, some of the brothers and sisters that we have around the world live in, in real fear of being uh, imprisoned or killed. But, but in times that, co- that, that come into our lives that bring pain or hardship or fear, um, those hard times can be fruitful times for us. When we encounter one of those times, we can say, you know what, Lord, instead of having the attitude of, what are you doing, Lord? What are you doing? Why is this happening to me? How long is this going to last? Maybe we should change our attitude and change our perspective. Instead of saying, what are you doing, Lord? Or or, why is this happening to me? Or how long is it going to last? We can say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do to use this opportunity to declare your greatness and your power. Because, Lord, I believe that this time, it's hard, it's not fun, I never would have chosen it, but I believe that because of your power, that this hard time can be a fruitful time. And so what is it, Lord, that I could do during this time to expand your gospel? Because, again, hard times can be fruitful times. Now, as we read the rest of this section, uh, the rest of this text this morning, there are going to be two issues that are going to pop to the surface that we'll need to examine together. First, uh, we're going to read about the Samaritans and how they responded to the gospel and how they responded to the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that what happened there seems like it's pretty significant. And we might rightly wonder, okay, is this normal? Is uh, this something that we should expect to happen in our lives, just the way it happened back there in Samaria. And and we're going to discover the answer to that question is actually very relevant to us. And it's going to issue a powerful invitation to us to uh, consider or reconsider the way that we love one another, especially those of us who may be a little bit different, how we love one another within the community of the church. The second issue that we're going to encounter this morning, it comes from a guy named Simon. And we're going to see how Simon responded to the gospel, how he responded to the Holy Spirit. And it's going to raise some questions there as well. We're going to to think, man, okay, is, is this normal? What's up with this guy Simon? Is he even a Christian? Is his faith even real? And again, as we dig into his story, we're going to discover there is a powerful warning for every one of us to take to heart as we seek to follow Jesus in our lives, okay? So let's look at Acts chapter 8, verse 9 to 11. And in this section, Luke sort of pauses, telling uh, the broader story. He's going to introduce this guy, Simon. Simon was one of the guys who was there in Samaria when Philip came to preach the gospel, okay? So in in verse 9, it says this, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Back then, just as it continues today, people were fascinated by those who were magicians. Um, There were fortune tellers, there were practitioners of astrology or witchcraft, and that kind of stuff happened back then just as it happened today. And, And Simon had attracted for himself quite a crowd. The text tells us here that they were amazed by him, and they paid attention to him. They even had a nickname for him. They said, this, is, this man is the power of God that is called great. And here's the thing. Simon loved it. He reveled in the attention. It was the biggest boost to his ego you could imagine to have crowds of people paying attention to him and calling him great. But then Philip shows up, and the game changes. It says in verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they, the people that formerly were paying attention to Simon, were baptized, both men and women. So here's Philip. He comes to Samaria. He's preaching the message of Jesus Christ, and he's demonstrating the truth and the power of the gospel through amazing works of Holy Spirit power. Uh, People were having demons cast out of them. People were being healed. The the result was amazing. People's lives were being changed. Uh, uh, People were putting their faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized. And with all of that said, maybe verse 13 comes as a bit of a surprise. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We're going to come back to Simon and his story just a bit. But as, as Luke continues to unfold what was happening there in Samaria... Let's consider this question raised by the Samaritans and and how they responded to the gospel and to the coming of the Holy Spirit, okay? So it says in verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Peter and John make the trip from Jerusalem to Samaria. And once they get there, they see these men and women there in Samaria were indeed saved. They had responded to the gospel and put their faith in Jesus but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John lay their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Again, I say, hmm. If you have any familiarity with the Bible or with the New Testament in particular, right now you may be thinking, okay, hold up. Hold the game. What's going on here? This is, this is something different. 
this is one of those places in the Bible where over the centuries there has been a lot of ink uh, spilled by scholars and commentators and theologians trying to explain what's going on. The facts seem pretty clear. Uh, the men and women there in Samaria heard the gospel, they responded in faith, but then they had to wait for a period of time for Peter and, and John to come and to lay their hands on them, and that's when they received the Holy Spirit. And the question is, is this the way it works? Um, why this gap between the moment of their salvation and the coming of the Holy Spirit? Is this normal? Is, is this uh, the way it's set, set before us? Is the way it should happen for all Christians everywhere, even up to today? Or is this an exception, kind of a one-time event that should not be repeated? Again, there's been much ink spilled on both sides of this dispute. Uh, some from a Roman Catholic background or others from a, or a Pentecostal background uh, they look at this text as a major proof text for something called a two-stage initiation or sometimes called a second blessing. In their view, uh, this text teaches that the Holy Spirit comes at some time after salvation. And, and they would say that this here in Acts 8 is a normative event. That's how it worked back then, and that's how we should expect it to work today. Others from a more conservative evangelical background, including me and the rest of our leaders here at Redeemer, uh, view this differently. We view this as not a two-stage initiation, but actually a one-stage initiation, a single stage. Uh, the viewpoint on this side is that when a man or a woman puts their faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment that they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, at that same moment they receive the forgiveness of their sins and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit all at that same time. And so those on this side of the debate would say that, that this is, if you will, not a normal event, not something that we should expect to be repeated. Okay? But the fact remains, it happened. The fact remains that, that these men and women responded to the gospel. They responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then a gap of time happened before they received the Holy Spirit when Peter and John came from Jerusalem to lay their hands on them. And the question remains, why? Why did God choose to do it this way? I believe that uh, this was, uh, 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 the answer to this is a very relevant issue for us. And it's going to issue us a powerful invitation that's going to change the way that we relate to others inside our community. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay? Just hang with me here. How many Aggies we have in the house? Woo! All right, I'm an Aggie. If you're an Aggie, who do you hate? Don't think about it. You hate the Longhorns, right? We hate the Longhorns, right? We, Kale Kibbe and Jerry Went, exceptions, right? But we hate the Longhorns. Now, any Red Sox fans in the house? Al Clark, uh, Gary Budawig, Danny Hart. Okay, I, over here, Ryan, got it. Michael Harrington. Red Sox fans, who do you hate? Yankees, right? Can't stand the Yankees. A bunch of cheaters and bums, right? <laughs> if you're a Jew living in Israel in the first century, who do you hate? 
Samaritans. The hatred ran deep, way deeper than some kind of sports rivalry. Because centuries earlier, when the nation of Israel had been conquered by the nation of Assyria, uh, Assyria came in, they, they grabbed up a whole bunch of the Israelites, and they took them off and moved them out back over to Assyria to kind of incorporate them into their culture. But they left behind a number of Jews to stay there in Jerusalem, and they moved in a number of the Assyrians. And when that happened, these Jews that remained there in Israel and these new Assyrians began to intermarry and mingle. And so the pure-blood Jews would look at those people who intermingled, the people who became Samaritans, and they hated them. Dirty half-breeds. You've, you've insulted our heritage as the people of God by intermarrying with these conquering pagan Assyrians. And not only that, but the Samaritans began to worship God differently. They would no longer worship God at the temple there in Jerusalem. Now they began to worship God in their own place there in Samaria. And for these reasons, the people of, uh, of Israel hated the Samaritans. The divide of racism and, and discrimination was deep. And so why... In the midst of this racially charged environment, did God delay the Holy Spirit? When, he, when, when these people there in Samaria heard the gospel, why would God delay the Holy Spirit coming to them? Again, I believe that, that God did this. I, I believe this is not just me. There's lots of men and women who are way smarter than me. That God did this as a powerful statement of unity. Because what happened? Peter and John came from Jerusalem, home of the Jews. They were the, the chief apostles, if you will. They came up here to Samaria. And here's these Samaritans who had responded to Jesus. And when Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritans, because of the power of the gospel, they became one. There wasn't the, the Samaritan Christians and the Jewish Christians no, there was just Christians, okay? Because of the power of the gospel, they became one. And as it says there in your notes, different people, because of the gospel, can be unified people. Different people, because of the gospel, can be unified people. In our world today, even here in a place like West Houston, which is incredibly diverse, is it not true that even today that things like race, culture, and language still present some pretty significant barriers to how we all kind of mix and intermingle? Is not that true? It's been said for years that Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week. Is that not also still true? What this means is this, what, what this example, this, this teaching here from the text, it, it, it provides us a powerful invitation that we can, because we believe in Jesus, because we're people of the book, because we have trusted in the gospel, we can, by the way that we live together, work together, serve together, and worship together. We can demonstrate that while there may be things like racism and discrimination that happen out there at large, here in the church, that stuff 
has no home. Different people can be unified people. I can't tell you enough, church, how much our leadership is excited about what God is doing with Redeemer and Espanol. We praise God that there are men and women, more men and women all the time, who are hearing the gospel in their heart language of Spanish. That's fantastic. May their tribe increase. And we're thrilled to know that we're one church with two congregations. Maybe, by God's grace in the future, we'll have one church with three congregations, one church with five congregations. Who cares? We're one because of the gospel. Makes sense. So, after Luke has given us that account of what happened there with the Samaritans and how they received the Holy Spirit, now he's going to go back and pick up the story of Simon in verse 18. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Remember that, that Simon was something of a local celebrity. Um, uh, people paid a lot of attention to him because of his magic tricks, and Simon loved it. He just reveled in that spotlight. But then when Philip came with the truth and the power of the gospel, the game changed. People weren't paying as much attention to Simon anymore. Now, they were paying attention to Jesus. They were paying attention to what Philip had said. And, and then Peter and John from Jerusalem, they come and the game changed again. When, when these guys prayed, people were filled with the Holy Spirit. People's lives were changing. And now Simon, Simon was kind of like yesterday's news. Washed up. Has been. Nobody's paying attention to him anymore. And so Simon, if I could speculate a bit, get inside his head, he's thinking if he could somehow get this Jesus power, then maybe some of that attention would come back his way. And man, I wish I could have been there for this. This would have been an amazing moment. Simon waited, waits for an opportune moment when he can approach Peter and John and make his pitch. Maybe he's waiting for them to kind of get off to the side when they can be alone. And he says, hey, if you'll just let me in on your secret, if you'll just give me some of this power, if, if you can tell me how you do it, and if you'll do that, that'd be great. And you know what? In return, I'll give you some money. I can make you a rich man. Nobody ever even needs to know. And then in a split second, Simon knows he has made a horrible miscalculation. Because Peter looks him in the eye and says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, for this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I'm sure Simon wanted to crawl under a rock. He was stunned and seemingly 
more concerned about avoiding the consequences of his sin than, than in repenting and getting right with the Lord. And so he kind of meekly says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Peter rebukes Simon harshly, right? It's pretty clear. What I want you to hear is this, that Peter's words were also full of mercy. Peter's harsh rebuke was also contained a lot of mercy. And, and, and let me tell you why that is. For you and me, the love of self, the, the kind of life that has me at the center, the kind of life where it's me and everybody else kind of orbits around me, that kind of life is an extremely dangerous way to live. A me-centered life that's all about you is like a serious cancer of the soul. And if it's not addressed, if it's not met head on and addressed, it can be spiritually fatal. Both Peter and John, both Peter and John, the guys who came from Jerusalem, they had both received their own gracious rebuke for a me-centered life. Jesus himself had rebuked both of them for looking at life as if it was all about them, and that they were in the center. And, and Jesus had rebuked them both, and thankfully, they both responded well. Maybe Simon would respond well and be delivered. The Bible doesn't tell us one way or the other, but the early church literature suggests that Simon later became known for spreading lies and heresies about God, about Jesus, and about the gospel. And if that's true, that means that Simon tragically ignored Peter's warning. But here's the deal. God doesn't want us to ignore the warning. I believe that one of the reasons God recorded this sad story of Simon in the Bible is so that you and I can remember that the gospel and living our lives as followers of Jesus is not about us. I think that was something that Dennis said in his video. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. We need to remember that the gospel is not about us. Following Jesus isn't a means for us to pursue our own greatness or for us to, to simply have all of our needs met, all of our dreams come true. As it says there in your notes, following Jesus must be about following Jesus. Following Jesus must be about following Jesus. And that means that, that Jesus is not our homeboy. That means that, that Jesus is not just a means for me to, to feel good and to have comfort and to have a lot of, of, of nice things happen, right? That, that all those things may happen in our lives as blessings from the Lord, but, but that's not the ultimate purpose. Following Jesus must be about following Jesus. And I'm sure all of us can relate to Simon. I know I can. We're all tempted to just think about me, right? We're all tempted that way. This morning, as I was praying, I'm ashamed to tell you this, as I was praying, just by kind of habit, I bowed my head and literally I said these words, not out loud in my mind. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. Would you bless me today? Da, 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 da. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's wrong. 
Following Jesus is about following Jesus, not about me. Now, I should, we should pray, and we can pray, Lord, would you bless me, but I don't want to do that first. It needs to come after I spend time just praising the Lord and magnifying Him and thanking Him for His grace and for His mercy. I want to introduce you to perhaps a phrase that sadly defines what many people in our culture associate with Jesus and associate with the gospel. The phrase is called therapeutic deism. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Therapeutic deism. Let me tell you what that's about. Therapeutic deism, it's a belief that goes like this. Instead of viewing God as the loving and sovereign God of the universe... Instead of viewing God that way and living our lives to worship him and to give him our glad submission. Therapeutic deism sees God as sort of a a cosmic therapist. Kind of a divine butler. It's like Siri on your phone. Hey God. And when you need him, he's there to help make you feel good or to, to do something for you. But other than that, not really part of your life, okay? That's what therapeutic deism, he's, he's, he's there for me when I need it, but other than that, this is a, a me-centered perspective, and it declares that the biggest concern that God has is doing everything he can to keep me safe, keep me happy, and keep me secure. And sadly, through a cocktail of self-help books, prosperity gospel preachers, and our own fallenness, there are many men and women in our culture that have bought in to this idea of therapeutic deism. Again, I think one of the biggest reasons that Luke records this story of Simon here in Acts chapter 8 is so that we can hear this story and, and receive and respond to this warning about having a me-centered approach to Jesus. I'm well aware that, that this message out there in the culture at large is probably not going to be real popular. I mean, I'm not sure how many, you know, tens of people listen to our podcast here, but this one would not be in the number one, you know, of, of the podcast list. All right? To the extent that you and I see any of that me-centeredness happening in here, we've got to get that right. The reason is, is if we approach life where it revolves around me, that only sets us up for great grief and great disappointment. God did not design us to live that way. He has not designed this world to operate that way. A few months ago, I was talking with a friend, and and he used a phrase that has just been bouncing around in my head since then. And the way he said it is this, that as followers of Jesus, we need to put Jesus in the center and take a step back. You put Jesus in the center and take a step back. And the reason I love that phrase is because it defines and it describes how our relationship is with Jesus. He's in the center of our lives. And as I take a step back, I'm there to worship him. I'm there to serve him. I'm there to bring glory to his name by by living in obedience and by telling others of his great love and his great truth. And ironically, perhaps, 
Are there benefits that we receive from following Jesus? Yeah, there are some wonderful benefits. We receive the forgiveness of our sins. And in place of our awful record of sin and disobedience, we receive Jesus' perfect record of obedience and righteousness in our place. That's incredible. Another benefit that we receive is instead of being an enemy of God, in a broken relationship with God, God through Jesus invites us into his family and adopts us to become his sons and daughters through Christ. That's amazing, to be a son or a daughter of the king. We can enjoy all of these blessings now, all these blessings and more. We can enjoy them all right now, and then when we die, we go to heaven where we can enjoy them forever. Those are some amazing benefits. But again, it's not because we have me at the center. It's because we have put Jesus in the center and take a step back to worship him, to serve him. This is the word of God. This morning, it's told us that hard times can be fruitful times. It's told us that because of the gospel, different people can be unified people. And it's also told us that following Jesus must be about following Jesus. Would you please pray with me? Father, we praise you for your great power and your great love. Thank you for sending Jesus to be a savior and through him to make it possible for sinners like us to be forgiven and to live in relationship with you. Lord, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in gospel unity with one another and no matter our differences, help us to enjoy and to reflect that we are one in Christ. Help us to live that out in all aspects of our lives. And Lord, we want to honor you. We want to be a blessing to others and to demonstrate the truth that that you are at the center of our lives, that it's your love and your ability to change people that we want to honor, we want to worship, we want to live by your truth and not just think of you as somebody who's there just to keep us happy. Forgive us for ever thinking that. Help us to change. Help us Again, Lord, to live lives more and more with you at the center. We want to live for you and for your glory. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for coming to be our Savior. We ask these things in your name. Amen.